Good afternoon, Dr. Dan Guerra here, Authentic Biochemistry Studios. Today is the 16th of January, and indeed it is the year 2022. So we're really deep into a discussion of dihydroceramides as virulence factors uh, from a periodontal disease-causing bacterium. And we're going to try to jump right into that again. Um, and I really apologize for not being able to show you the structures because obviously this is an audio lecture. But I did promise that I would do a synoptic or summary lecture where I carry out a dialectical event ontology of uh, this particular topic of avirulence. And I will definitely do that. And then you'll see the structures because I get to see them and they are quite beautiful, I might say. So let's just jump back into this lecture because I'm sure that it's going to take more than <laughs> uh, one more um, because I keep on adding to it, right? So P. gingivalis produces many different classes of phosphorylated dihydroceramides. Remember, we're calling those PDHCs. And besides that, you have the serine dipeptide lipids. So those sphingoid bases that you see in these DHC lipids typically are saturated fatty acids, but they have unusual um, carbon chain length. Some of them are 17, 18, of course, which is common, but 17 and 19 are uncommon. You also have isobranching, and that occurs in those odd-numbered carbon chains. So you get some unusual structures, and that is not at all uncommon when you start looking at uh, prokaryotic lipids as compared to eukaryotic. So remember, I told you last night that the Schwinglet base itself is called a Schwinganin. It, that is really a dihydroschwingosine or dihydroceramide when the amide is linked to the fatty acid. Remember, that's a nitrogen atom linked to that carbonyl. Okay? And so... Many of the sphingolipids we see in P. gingivalis are actually 3-hydroxy-isobranched once you add it to that amide linkage. So uh, what else do I want to say? Free DHC lipids, those are now going to be secreted from the bacteria or carried out via a fusogenic process with the epithelia of the host oral cavity these free DHC lipids serve as a precursor core for the synthesis of phosphatidylethanolamine DHC and phosphatidylglycerol DHC lipids. And indeed, the isobranched aliphatic change of phosphoglycerol dihydroceramides and phosphatidylinositol dihydroceramides actually seem to contribute most to the biological activity of um, thus inducing um, the disease because these are acting as virulence factors. So serine dipeptide lipids of gingivalis include two unique structures. And they were first described in Fusobacterium meningoseptica, and they were termed back then flavolipids. Flavolipins are originally reported to be TLR4 ligands, but the more recent work in the later uh, 2017-2018 period 
suggested that might be a mistake. Maybe they're more like a TLR2 ligand. <laughs> so just like with P. gingivalis sphingolipids, these serine dipeptide lipids are recovered in the diseased periodontal tissues. But you also find them in, in the circulation in the blood and in, stuck into arterial walls. Uh, so they, they are mobilized. It appears too, and I mentioned this yesterday, the PLA2, phospholipase A2, converts one of those lipids to yet another unique serine dipeptide lipid. And again, I told you this was done with GC mass spec. So they have absolute structures. So all these unique lipids are increased in the serum. And along with that, those lipids seem to increase CCL2, also known as MCP1. And you see this in wild-type mice, but not in TLR2 knockout mice, okay? So what is CCL2 and what is MCP1? Now, if you recall, chemokines constitute a huge family of chemo-attracted subclass of cytokines. And normally you subdivide chemokines into four discrete families based on the number and the spacing of their conserved cysteine residues which are more towards the proximal end terminus of the polypeptide. So chemokines play this really important role in recruiting monocytes, neutrophils, and lymphocytes, as well as inducing that initial chemotaxis through the activation, yeah, through GPCR, G-protein-coupled receptors. So finally, I'm telling you that the monocyte chemo-attracted protein 1 which is MCP1 or CCL2, it's, those are synonyms, is one of those classical canonical chemokines that regulate migration and infiltration of monocytes and macrophages, okay? So that's what's going on here when, the, when these unique lipids I just told you about um, from the bacteria and from P. gingivalis, they actually cause an increase in this chemokine production. So both CCL2 and its receptor, of course, is called CCR2, have been shown to be induced in various periodontal diseases, including non-periodontal diseases, but still in association with periodontal um, disorders. So you get what I'm saying there. If you have a periodontal disease, and you have, of course, secretion of these chemokines, you also sometimes have an associated disease, which is not directly uh, in the oral cavity. So that's because the migration of the monocytes, and, and it's occurring in circulation across many vascular endothelium, will then induce this immunological surveillance phenomena and that will, and the response of that is an inflammatory one. Okay, so you get how this works. So P. gingivalis total lipids, phosphatidylglycerol DHC lipids, and PEA, that's phosphatidylethanolamine lipids, indeed promoted. This is from this paper I'm talking about interleukin one beta, and interleukin one beta mediated secretion of yet other pro-inflammatory mediators. A secretion of the pro-inflammatory PGE2, which of course is a cyclooxygenase product directly from arachidonic acid after PLA2 
removal of the arachidonic acid, its reacidification as a coenzyme A thioester, and then the production with that co arachidonyl CoA after cyclooxygenase activity, the production of PGE2. And PGE2 is again an inflammatory mediator. So you also get uh, from that pathway of uh, these ricosinoid pathways now, really important one called 6-ketoprostaglandin F2 alpha. Now I talked a lot about that particular icosinoid when we were discussing parturition uh, in humans, right? And I and now you get an idea here of how you can induce a spontaneous abortion by an associated heavy load of periodontal disease because of the production of these chemokines, which then will fire up icosinoid production and throw that into circulation. You see how that comes together? All right. So the potentiation of PG2 synthesis and the secretion from fibroblasts directly, which are also in circulation, all are probably mediated through the Tolec receptor 2. And that's going to be a classical mechanism for P. gingivalis to promote a systemic inflammatory response in the host. And that includes, of course, very specifically, osteoclast-mediated bone resorption. And by that, you get a promotion of tissue breakdown and, of course, periodontal disease. Now, the effect of the bacterial PGDHC is the prostaglandin, uh, excuse me, prostaglycerol uh, dehydroceramides, that's PGDHC, on alveolar bone destruction is actually a quintessential process in periodontitis. Okay, so it's a direct effect. So PGDHC lipids do promote receptor activator of nuclear factor kappa B ligand. Now, you probably remember me talking about this before. If you are a um, uh, loyal authentic biochemistry um, student. Now, that whole thing, receptor activator, nuclear factor, kappa B ligand, that's also known as rankle. And rankle induces osteoclastogenesis because it interacts with a, a myosin 2A, which is actually a non-muscle myosin. And another name for the myosin 2A is also MYH9, okay? So the latter, this, this last protein just mentioned, MYH, is an osteoclast cell fusion regulatory cell protein. And it's localized to the cytoplasm uh, in the host cell. So MYH9 elicited a signal that made RAS-related C3 botulinum toxin substrate 1, that's the RAC1 protein, upregulate the expression of a dendritic cell-specific transmembrane protein. We're just going to call that DC stamp. So the DC stamp is known as a key osteoclast fusogen. And of course, it's responsible for cell fusion processes during osteoclastogenesis. And this mechanism is going to involve a RAC1 DC stamp, but not, interestingly, a TLR2 or TLR4 mechanism. So instead of binding to TOLAC receptors 2 or 4, 
which are of course expressed on the cell surface, the <laughs> phosphatidylglycerol DHC interacts with the cytoskeletal protein that's of course localized in the host cytoplasm. So another thing to keep in mind is MYH9 produced a cell signal that involved RAC1, as I just mentioned, and that then serves to upregulate the expression of DC stamp. Okay. It just, uh, I just repeated what I said a couple of minutes ago. So the, the key osteoclast fusion, therefore, is responsible for the process of cell fusion, which allows this membrane lipid transmigration. And all this is happening at, at and during osteoclastogenesis. So what this serves to demonstrate is that PGDHC DHC penetrates the membrane of the osteoclast precursor and essentially translocates all the way to the nucleus okay, because it's going to be involved in control modification of gene expression. Okay. So <laughs> this really now repaints the picture of how macrophage fusion occurs during osteoclast formation and how you get promotion of osteoclast-induced bone breakdown from the macrophage introduction, all associated with development of chronic periodontitis. This took all the way to 2018 to figure this out. Now, a little bit more about this whole process, okay? So I'm going to go to a paper published again in 2019, a year later, in the Journal of Biological Chemistry. So this wasn't known when this 2018 paper was published, but you need to know this so that you can process all this information. Again, this is what I do in authentic biochemistry. I give you the whole story, right? All right, now, this paper talks about a high-fat diet and a glucocorticoid called dexamethasone. So either a HFD, high-fat diet, or the glucocorticoid dexamethasone will induce steatosis in the liver. And you get an increased hypertriacylglycerolemia and the production of ceramide. And all that works through that glucocorticoid receptor. So the HFD can induce glucocorticoid production, or you can just use dexamethasone to get this response. Now, this, is, of course, is a mouse model. So let's follow along. We've got a uh, Profeptinorcetokine, known as TNF-alpha. TNF-alpha induces the acidic sphingomyelinase. What does that produce? Ceramide. The ceramide generated then triggers programmed cell death, right? I told you that's one of the canonical features of ceramide. And then you get a cascade of pro-inflammatory responses, <clears throat> all working through multiple receptors, including the tnf are, that is the tumor necrosis factor alpha receptor, but also the TLR2, which can also bind to a lipid produced from these bacteria, LPS, or even free fatty acid. Where do you get the free fatty acid? Phospholipase A2 activity, which was also induced during uh, this disease progression. So remember this process, right? You've got I'll just tell you, okay, in order for you to synthesize ceramide, there are multiple inducers. So you have serine and palmitoyl-CoA making three keto schwinganine, okay? 
that enzyme can be induced by TNF-alpha, by nitric oxide, by angiotensin II, also by retinoic acid. And guess what? It's also chronically induced during, uh, well, I shouldn't say during, at an obesogenic um, status. So people who are obese have a chronic induction of serine palmitoyl transfer, uh, serine palmitoyl CoA transferase activity, generating three keto sphingidine, which then gets converted to sphingidine and then dehydroceramide to ceramide. Okay, once you make ceramide, you can also synthesize glycosyl sphingolipids first through glucosyl ceramide, and that's induced also by TNF alpha and pro-inflammatory cytokines. Okay, so you get this massive production. Now, what else happens? The ceramide will cause cytoplasmic membrane construction because it acts as a membrane lipid raft, right? And ceramide can also be broken down to sphingosine by growth factors and cytokine induction. And that's carried out by ceraminidase. The sphingosine can be used in the, pro, in, in the reaction sphingosine kinase to make sphingosine 1-phosphate, thus repealing all the ceramide-mediated events. Also keep in mind that ceramide can be used to make sphingomyelin via the sphingomyelin synthase, right? And there's also a ceramide kinase, which will make the ceramide 1-phosphate. This will all lead to this program cell death process. Okay. So you get the idea of all, all the multiple ramifications of once you trigger ceramide production. And now keep in mind that Tolec receptor 2 normally recognizes a microbial structure. This could include a fungal cell wall, the lipoproteins from gram-positive bacteria, in fact, also gram-negative bacteria, peptidoglycan, mycobacterial lipoarabinomanan and GPI anchors, in fact, from, from trypanosomes. So TLR2 and uh, TLR21 and TLR26 fusions of those two tolec receptors, when they are fused in the membrane, will recognize unique bacterial antigens, like, for example, the triacylated lipopeptides and diacylated lipopeptides. Okay, and when all that happens, when you have that fusion of TLR2 and TLR1, that will trigger the mid-88 production of NF-kappa B, which is going to fire pro-inflammatory cytokine production. And then the cytokine, you're going to get, uh, excuse me, in the endosome, you're going to get TLR2, TLR1, also working as a dimer, and then the endosome, that will trigger a TRAM, mid-88 TRAM uh, signal transduction cascade, which will turn on IRF1, IRF3, and IRF7, a dimer of that. And that complex will cause the synthesis of type 1 interferons. So this is how the innate innate immune system canonically is triggered. So TLR2 signaling pathway involves an activation at the plasma membrane, Formation of a heterodimer, I just mentioned, with TLR1 or TLR6 with two, right? And then you have these adapter proteins. I mentioned mid-88, but there's also an adapter protein called MAI. And when you have that, you generate what's known as a midosome, 
<laughs> and you get the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines. And all of those are following an NF-kappa B-dependent matter because NF-kappa B, of course, is a transcription factor for pro-inflammatory cytokine uh, transcription and then therefore translation and secretion. So the post-activation of TLR2 heterodimer I just mentioned because that's the one that gets internalized into the endosome and you get signaling, which can be initiated from the endosome. And then what I tell you that just did, that, that turns on the type 1 interferon production and you're on your way then for type 1 interferons, okay? So this is a canonical innate immune response, right? So TLR2 activates P38 and ERK12 signaling selectively to modulate and upregulate an interleukin-6 mediated rankle, and then, then that then induces a chondrogenic transdifferentiation of smooth muscle cells, of vascular smooth muscle cells, and that causes vascular calcification. And you know what that signals? <laughs> Associated atherosclerosis. Okay, that's how you get atherosclerosis by by increasing the TLR2 activation. That vascular calcification follows that process. So now you're starting to see the true pathology of the situation. Right? I, I want you to get the full story. That's why I'm giving you this backup discussion. Now, I'm telling you about multiple papers that are published that gave me this information, and I will definitely remember to put them all in the show notes so you see that I just covered their four papers published but all in 2018, 2019, I think. Um, okay, so back to this. Back to this gingivalis paper. I just told you all about rankle and canonical innate immune response activation, which is all triggered. Now you know the backstory by a periodontitis, which can be induced by the gram-positive bacteria generating those lipids, right? So P. gingivalis, bacitylethanolamine, dihydroceramide, and P. gingivalis, um, bacitylglycerol DHC lipids are, when, when, they, when they're studied, you have to make sure they're free of lipid A because you don't want to find any lipid A-mediated toll-like receptor activation. And when they did that, they definitely found that those lipids, those dihydroceramides, generate osteoblast proliferation, viability, and apoptosis, okay? Now, they are involved in proliferation, viability, and apoptosis, but only when that process of production of PE and PGDHC is stopped. Hence, you see what I mean about the avirulence pathway. When you block phosphatidylethanol and phosphatidylglycerol DHCs, you don't get osteoblast proliferation, viability, and then ultimately apoptosis because they're not affected. Now, osteoblast differentiation genes like the RUNX2 and ALP and oh, DMP1, they're all downregulated, whereas, as I just mentioned, Rankle, TNF-alpha, and that MMP, that's the metalloproteinase, uh, uh, three genes, they're all upregulated. What's that going to signal? That's right, tissue degradation, okay? 
So you don't get osteoblast apoptosis, but everything else starts to become degraded. And it's not via programmed cell death. It's via necrosis or ferroptosis, which I haven't mentioned yet. So total lipids and PEDHC and PGDHC lipid fractions also inhibited in this paper calvarial osteoblast gene expression and function. So those same lipid preparations I just mentioned inhibited osteoblasts through a TLR2 engagement. And that agrees with the whole process I just told you about, including the observations on alveolar bone loss, specifically with animals only infected orally with P. gingivalis. So you see how important periodontitis can be to overall human health, right? Absolutely can induce a pro-inflammatory status. And what did I tell you could trigger all of this five minutes ago? Obesity, obesity. Okay, so when I talk about this, and many people say, well, why would obesity have an effect on infection or on the neuroendocrine system or on the CNS? This is now giving you that biochemical detail, okay? You understand how obesity can be linked to periodontitis directly. One way is by the overconsumption of high sugar-containing foods. It's particularly sucrose-containing. Sucrose, remember, is the sugar you get from plants, not animals, right? So plant sugars are much more likely to induce both the endodontal disease I was talking about all last week, karyogenesis, and periodontitis. This is why many dentists will tell you, don't take in sucrose-containing foods. And sucrose, again, is the disaccharide, which is the soluble translocatable sugar in plants, not in animals. Okay? So plant sugars are the worst, is what I'm telling you. And this whole process can be induced by the particular if you're in an obesogenic state. Okay, so those lipid preparations I was telling you about, PEDHC and PGDHC, um, they inhibit osteoblasts through the TLR2 engagement. I told you that agrees with this whole alveolar bone loss in the animals caused by oral gingivalis. They could therefore act as microbial virulence factors, these lipids, in periodontitis. And they do it again by inhibiting osteoblast function and that whole sequelae of gene expression. So through serine dipeptide lipids, you get an activation of this process, okay? When you purify away the serine dipeptide lipids and get them free from any contaminating dehydroceramides, what you find is that that can account for all of the TOLAC receptor 2 dependent inhibition of osteoblast differentiation and function. Yep, just the dipeptides, the dipeptide uh, lipids, right? Serine dipeptide lipids. So it appears that this whole process is mediated through a TOLAC receptor in one phase and through non-TOLAC receptor mediation, which I've already gone through now, that whole rankle pathway, in another phase of inducing pro-inflammatory cytokine production, and then a backfill with the uh, synthesis of eicosanoids, which will trigger downstream, once they get into circulation, multiple systemic opening of pro-inflammatory sites throughout the body. Okay. 
That's why periodontitis is so dangerous. All right. What else I want to say? Phosphorylated dihydroceramide and serine dipeptide lipids have been reported to contaminate even free lipid A isolated from P. gingivalis LPS. And now it's believed that's what's really responsible for this TLR2 mediated effect. So when you highly purify away these lipids, you don't get that TLR2 activation. Okay. So I'm going to stop there. I got through all this uh, discussion and I'm a minute uh, free. So um, I, as I said, I'm going to give you one more lecture. I promise this would be the last, but I really want to discuss two more mechanisms that these serine dipeptide lipids and the PG and PE dihydroceramides have in, uh, control over mediating periodontitis and then systemic disease in humans. Okay, so uh, what else can I say? This is Dr. Dan Guerra uh, on the 16th of January, 2022, saying uh, both bye for now and bye to the California Rose.